Welcome to episode 13 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, along with my co-host, Mary, Queen of Scotch. I am Mary Darren Weeks. Mary, how's your day? Queen of Scotch. <laughs> I'm trying to keep, to keep it real, keep it real. So, <laughs> so how's your how's, how's it been going? How's the last couple of days been? We haven't talked in so long. Well, you have. But... A few hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it's been going good. It's been going good. It's a lot less uh, stressful than last week was, that's for sure. Oh, I know, I know. It was a, it was a tough one last week. But feels like it's back to normal, but... Um, feels like feels like the world's settling a little bit, so we're trying to get back to normal here. Yeah. We're going to have some fun and talk about some stuff. But I have a question for you. Do you bring your walking shoes today? Because you know what we're doing today? We are going on a march today, Mary. We yeah. are going through a march through Georgia. We are. As we are going to talk about Sherman's March to the Sea, mm-hmm. a subject very near and dear to your black heart. We will talk about some of the shenanigans that William T. Sherman did. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. But before we get into that, we have some housekeeping stuff to do. We do. We have to talk about what we're drinking tonight. We do. So I am drinking Haze Mama, which I've had before on the podcast. It's by Great Lakes Brewery. But the reason I chose it is because it's a New England IPA. Since my boy Howard makes an appearance tonight and he's from New England, I thought that was most appropriate. Very nice. Very nice. I will be drinking Lone Pine, also a New England beer from Maine, home of Oliver Otis Howard. Howard. It is the OJ, Lone Pine OJ, a fantastic double IPA from the sticks of Maine. And I'll be drinking it because we are talking about the Sherman, March of the Sea. And out we of my I, Sherman mugs. My I Dream of a Brighter Atlanta <laughs> coffee mug, which is my personal favorite coffee mug. And it's always so hot when I grab it. It's so weird. It's so hot. <laughs> You know, I, don't, I don't know what it is. It's so weird. And I just have my William T. Sherman mug. We got the, the dueling Shermans here. So. Yep. so anyway, before we get started with this, we got to uh, put a bow on the last week one. We had a good discussion on Ball's Bluff last week, I yeah, thought. we did. We had a fantastic yeah. visit with our good friend last night, John Heckman. Yes, we did. He was very, very awesome. And he had us on his live stream. For those that are not familiar with John Heckman, he is the tattooed historian on Facebook and you can find him on Twitter is at Inked Historian. He's an awesome, awesome guy. He's very, very down to earth in his approach to history. And he does live streams with, um, with a lot of different people. And we were very lucky to have been able to join him last night. And it was an awesome, awesome time. So shout out to John. And like I said, if, um, if y'all aren't following him, make sure you look him up at Inked Historian on Twitter and the tattooed historian on Facebook. He does a lot yep. of awesome things for the field. That was, of history. that was just fantastic last night. He yep. had a song. We talked about a whole bunch of good subjects to your point. You went the entire hour without swearing, Mary. I know, but remember never how heard, I was after as soon as Yes, we, I yeah. do. I do. <laughs> I do. You sort of met up for I've never heard you so controlled. It was really, really good, but it was yeah. really neat to have a lot of our friends join us on mm-hmm. that. that we saw, we saw a whole bunch of people or name names because we'll forget somebody and piss them off so we'll avoid that but we saw a lot well, of i know the alleys were on and jay yes, price the alleys were on and leonard was, was on, on. And, uh, uh, ben frail was on as well jen, Ro- jen rowling was on yes she was and she was so on. was andrea and oh andrea pike was on yeah. i know we had a we had an a pike sighting so we had a lot of good yeah. people so yeah. that was a lot of fun we definitely enjoyed that and now we get back to business tonight as we, we do begin to talk about another a third of our two-part episodes this one's going to be a little bit different though mary you had a great idea on how to do this one well i thought we should just kind of give a bit of a couple minute refresher on atlanta and its importance and then just talk about some of the background to the march to the sea and then take the march to sea to milledgeville which is it's not exactly the halfway point but it's kind of where the first part of the march to the sea is a little bit different than the 
then the rest of the march to the sea is after mm -hmm. Milledgeville. Milledgeville at that time in 1864 is the capital of Georgia, which I believe the capital is now Atlanta, but at that time it was Milledgeville. And that is kind of their first big stopping point. Like Sherman had basically three, like two major points along the way that he wanted to stop at. One of them, the first was mm -hmm. Milledgeville. The soldiers that were on the march had no idea that that was going to be their first stopping point, nor did they know when they started out that they were headed to Savannah. No, very covert. We'll talk about that. But I think to your point, we kind of we need to turn back the clock a little bit, mm -hmm. maybe kind of go into the beginning, maybe drop a little factual stuff about Sherman. We've talked about Sherman a couple of times on this podcast. He was foster kid. He was raised by a senator, Senator Ewing, yep. who got him into West Point, class of 1840. Yep. Um, obviously good students. And a lot of this background kind of plays itself later on. Sherman gets that, the first job in the army in Northern Georgia, mm -hmm. where he's benefited by learning the lay of the land. He learns the ins and outs. And one thing that was pretty neat about Sherman is when he would travel home, I don't know if you knew this, maybe, probably, of course you do it, Sherman. <laughs> when he would travel home, he always took a different road. Do you know that? Yeah, he did. Yep. And he had a photographic memory. I relate to that because I have a bit of a photographic memory myself. I, I don't necessarily remember street names or all that. I remember more like landmarks and stuff and I can map out places in my head quite easily, but that's what he did. And he knew the terrain like or most of the terrain on the March to the Sea. So he had that benefit going in is having Fully. a photographic memory and having been there before. It's amazing your photographic memory doesn't look at math equations and retain them better than if you think about it, right? Right, it is. I'm just really putting it out that. there. Oh, yeah. Well, well maybe Sherman was good at math because he used the census to figure out. He was good at math. As a matter of fact, at West Point, he studied math. He studied mm -hmm. metallurgy, we talked about. <laughs> he, studied, he studied science. He's a very talented um, artist as well. He was. And we talked about how he helped discover gold and recognize it in 1849, yep. where the name Uncle Blingy comes from, yep. we talked about. But he was very good at math and a good photographic memory. But, you know, he had some problems, though, after the, after the Army. He ended up leaving the Army, ended up taking a job at a bank, at a, as a banker, which we all know those are the coolest people. Yep. In bankers. California, it yep. failed. And... Yep, it failed miserably in the Northwest, I think, uh, out there. Ended up being a superintendent of a military college in Louisiana from that, which turned into... The LSU University. Yeah, and that Louisiana was at the State time University. of secession that he was doing that. Mm -hmm. And that was really and, heartbreaking for him because he finally thought he had found a place where he could move his family. Mm -hmm. And then secession happened and he was like, fuck. Well, he knew, you know, he wrote that letter. I didn't write it down, but paraphrasing, he's like, you have no idea. The North is going to basically kick your asses. Oh, to his friend got, Boyd. Yeah, yeah. They, they, got, they got factories. They've got warehouses. They've got... Mm -hmm. Rosewood clowns. They've got all <laughs> kinds of stuff up there in the north. You cannot beat them. They will fight you. They have a warlike people. I forget the phrase, but it's they have like a warlike type people and they will not whatever. But but he basically went on and on about stating that this war is going to be brutal. Yeah. And he was really the only one who thought that. I mean, he ended up going back in the army after Fort Sumter. He told Simon Cameron, we're gonna need at least two hundred thousand troops just for Kentucky and Tennessee alone. Yep. And they said, put down the pipe, blingy. That ain't going to happen. So Cameron then goes to the newspaper and says, this guy's nuts. He's crazy. Basically ends up quitting again, coming back to the army because of his buddy, U.S. Grant. Yeah. And he kind of goes from there. But boy, was he a uh, prophetic, Mary, if you think about it. And he, he obviously, a lot he more than 200,000. 
he was. And one of the interesting, just to kind of go back a little bit to what you were talking about, where, where he had to leave the army. So he had, he did fight in the first battle, Bull Run, proved his talent there, even though the Union Army lost. When he wasn't in the army, because well, he basically just took like a kind of a leave of absence, but it was his brother and Sherman's wife, Ellen, who both approached President Lincoln about letting him back in the army. In Robert L. O'Connell's book, Fierce Patriot, O'Connell mentions that the reason that Lincoln was so sympathetic towards what Sherman was going through was that he recognized that Sherman suffered from depression, just like Lincoln did. And he Uh knew he would be okay. And he was just said to Ellen, like, don't worry, I'm not going to kick your husband out of the army. He can come back. I know he's just going through a rough patch. But, you know, to your point, Grant as well probably played a role in that. And he came back to the army and like the rest is just history, right? Oh, he said, Grant helped me when I was a drunk and I helped Grant. Or, you know, I was a, Grant stood you by know, me when I was crazy. Was crazy and, I and I stood by him when he was a drunk. drunk. Right. And he also said of Grant that he was, Sherman was the older man in years, but Grant the higher in rank. Grant was younger, but there was a time where just after the March of the Sea, where there was this kind of campaign to get Sherman to the same rank as Grant. And his brother mm-hmm. was behind that campaign, and Sherman said, absolutely not. You know, Sherman back at West Point, you know, they said he finished fourth in his class, but he mm-hmm. slipped a six because of demerits. Yep, yeah, he graduated a private. He, yeah, he, yeah. Got, he, so the demerit points he lost every year were just 50 points under expulsion every single year he was at West Point. And he admitted oh. to, like, not keeping his uniform clean. There was this one, I don't know, it was like a pub or something just near West Point that they sometimes went to. Somehow Sherman got out and he snuck back a bunch of oysters from this place Mm -hmm. and he made himself and his roommates, one of whom was George Henry Thomas, this like dinner, apparently. What a different society we have nowadays. I just sneaking out of a bar, you know, waking up on a tough Sunday morning. And Goddard. Good Goddard, tell you about it. (laughs) Speaking of. God. But I mean, again, he, Sherman was a guy who, you know, you mentioned the photographic memory and he learned so much through his experiences. Now, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about this March in a little while. In reading Groom's book about Vicksburg, it's clear that he got a police, it had to have gotten his idea about his march without a supply line through Georgia by the experience that he had with Grant in Vicksburg. Absolutely. Because yeah. that, that was the first time in, in the Union Army that they left their supply line completely to march and so i have to think they saw the success of that sherman did and it stuck in his mind yep. because it's very similar to the way he was handled so so sherman basically you know he learned he takes his lumps at, at chickasaw in the vicksburg mm-hmm. campaign and he he kind of learns of some valuable lessons a little bit gets humbled a little bit mm-hmm. he'll get humbled a little bit later on at kennesaw mountain so, yep. you know during the atlantic campaign and missionary um, ridge and missionary ridge but you know fast forward a little bit to, to the spring of 1864 and you know, we talked about this in our Atlanta podcast about 100 years ago now, it feels like, you know, what was going on in the world right now You at that point, 1864, wars raging on, there's no end in sight, Lincoln's election hopes look really, really bad, it's pretty dim, yeah. Lincoln really needs a battlefield win, I mean big time. The gleam of Vicksburg and Gettysburg is gone, it, it just, the election is looming, Atlanta is the second biggest industrial place after Richmond, it has to be had, so yeah. War continues in Georgia. It's, it's moving right along. Not to get too, too deep about the Atlantic campaign again. Jefferson Davis replaces Joseph Johnson with, with John Bell Hood. Sherman's loving that because now he gets an aggressive guy who's going to make mistakes in his front. And exactly what happened. September 1st, after a long bombardment of Atlanta, where there's some pretty sad stories about civilians being killed and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Maybe the beginning of that total war thing. With yeah. Sherman. And finally, he wins. Mayor Calhoun on September 1st surrenders the city. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it begins kind of a long kind of stretch of cooling period now yep. for Sherman and his army. So he's going to sit there from early September until mid-November. Which was not be, good for him. Which was not good because, I mean, you know all those little redheaded guys get? He's bouncing off the walls probably. Oh yeah, he was know? like Robert L. O'Connell says of Sherman, like he didn't sleep very much during his life. And when he wasn't sleeping, he was like walking around and talking and he would jump from subject to subject to subject to subject, which sounds kind of like the two of us. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not like someone I know, as a matter of fact. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, Sherman, oh, look, a bird. But he's sitting there. And, and so he finally gets, he finally takes Atlanta and he's just chilling. So he's got to keep an eye on Tennessee because that's where John Bell Hood's going to be going. So he sends up a portion of the army that way. But he's going to keep 60,000 of his guys with him. He's going to begin his march to Savannah. And this is, this is what it's going to be. So we'll kind of run through the players a little bit about who he had. Yeah. And then we'll talk more about that. So two armies, the Army of the Tennessee, which is the right-wing commander, is the... Oliver Otis Howard. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Oliver Otis Howard is going to command two corps. He's going to command uh, the 15th Corps by Peter Osterhaus and the 17th Corps under Frank Blair. Um, the other side of the army is the Army of Georgia which the left wing is commanded by Henry Slocum, if you got him, yep. from Gettysburg. He's going to have two corps, the 14th Corps by Jefferson C. Davis and the 20th Corps by Alpheus Williams. So he's going to basically have 60,000 guys along with Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry. And they're going to take a slow stroll to little town of Savannah. 15 miles a day is what they're going to go. Before this, Sherman... I think he wanted to get started a little bit earlier than this, but because of what was happening with John Bell Hood, he, he couldn't. So he, it did take some convincing with Grant before Grant was fine. Grant Lincoln finally like, fine, go fucking run your show. It would have been so easy for them to stay in Atlanta because yeah. the North, when, when Atlanta fell, the North was thrilled. Lincoln was literally doing, doing cartwheels. That's, that's what I read. He was doing mm-hmm. literal cartwheels in the white house. He was that excited about it. Um, <laughs> You had, you know, people, can you imagine that? that I just ass. pictured it. That's, yeah. that's why I laugh. Party on, dudes. You know, <laughs> so first thing Sherman does before we, we move on to the march is he expels pretty much everybody from Atlanta. Tells them to, you know, where he yeah. sent them, you know. Rough and ready. Rough and ready. The cheerleaders are greeting them there. He sent them down to the bang barn and rough and ready. <laughs> so he sent them down there. But all the blacks are still in town and they're having, they're having this party. They're dancing yeah. in the streets. They're having a great time because in their mind, slavery is over. Sherman is a hero. I mean, you, yeah. you can imagine, I mean, justifiably so he ain't having it. He decides the grand plan is he's like I said, he's going to send a portion of his army to Tennessee. He's going to send the rest of them to Savannah. And then once he gets there, he's going to go North and he's going to meet up with grants yep. and he's going to beat up Lee. And they called it the hammer and the anvil. Mm-hmm. Is what they called that plan. He had that fantastic quote where he said, I will push into the heart of Georgia, destroying all. I can make the march and make Georgia howl. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great that quote. Was, yeah. That was the quote that I had to, um, that's one of my favorite ones by him. And he, he writes it in a letter and he ends it with, I can make this march and make Georgia howl, but howl, but he says it's useless to occupy Atlanta but the utter destruction of railroads, houses, and people will cripple their military resources. Mm-hmm. So he sees Atlanta at this time as basically having like what you would, you could call diminishing returns. Like the longer we stay here, it's useless. We've already got it. So let's move on. As he said, by attempting to stay there and hold this one railway, they're losing a thousand men a month. Mm-hmm. And he just yeah. like Sherman just does not see that as being worth it anymore. 
So that's why he's like, I want to get out into Georgia and start. So not only is he going to be moving his base of operations from Atlanta to Savannah, he's going to be basically, and again, going back to O'Connell, O'Connell refers to him as a land shark, just going through. And so not only is he, he's waging a different type of war in this, it's also taking it like it's a psychological war. Mm -hmm. So if you are a man fighting up in the Eastern theater and your wife and kids are back in Georgia, you're going to be scared. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility you could desert. So he's starting to play this kind of the psychological game. And Sherman's take on it was basically that these people have decided to make war against us. And whatever I decide to do, it's because they made war. You know, he said a few times, I didn't choose this. I'm not choosing mm-hmm. to make war against you. You made this decision. Uh, yeah. He said that he said as much to the mayor of Atlanta and he he ended it. It's like, when you decide not to, I'll share the last cracker with you was how he ended that letter to him. You know, basically like, I'll be there for you to help you out. Finally, Lincoln, who is not in the hundred percent agreement finally is, he's just worried that one misstep by Sherman could throw everything off. Yeah, there's no doubt. And so he, at this point, Sherman's tunnel vision. He knows what he wants to do. Yeah. He's going to make sure that he's, but before he does, we're leading up to the, the big exodus from Atlanta now. So what he's going to do is he's going to, on the 11th of, of November, he's going to start burning the mills. He's going to yeah. start taking out the factories. He's really going to soften up the military structure in Atlanta is what he's yeah. going to do. So he's going to tear up the railroad going north. And you're going to start to see maybe a glimpse in the future of what's going to happen because yeah. you're going to see some of the soldiers starting to burn houses with arson. They're going to start losing a little bit because they're specific what they can burn. They want to burn military places only. But boys will be boys, unfortunately. He did post guards in front of places like churches and places like certain houses so people couldn't burn them. But a lot of the building did burn. I mean, the reality is a lot of, of Atlanta did go down. So yep. that's going to stay in the public memory. Again, historical mm-hmm. memory we talked many, many times about with Atlanta. 30 to 40% of the city was it's ultimately only, burned. Yeah, it's only 30 or 40%, you know, like you, you know, said. And a lot of it is going to be burned by Hood himself. Yep they start one explosion and then it goes to like another building. Well, they, they talk about that when Sherman heard that one gigantic explosion mm-hmm. of a railroad car going up with all the ammo. Yeah, That's when he, when they knew they were taken off, they knew that hood was hoods troops all leave. They're singing, they're literally singing that song Lorena as they're leaving. Um, they were, they really were, you know, wow. Not, they weren't, not, they weren't, they weren't saying, <laughs> they weren't saying call me maybe Mary. They were singing, they were singing Lorena. Okay. Um, not dancing queen. Oh, dancing. Well, I don't know. Maybe it depends <laughs> on how much how much whiskey they had. The one thing, though, that Sherman wanted on this march was he knew he wanted zero communication, and part of that is just because he didn't want Washington like knowing where he was. Mm-hmm. He also didn't want the Confederates knowing where he was. He wrote his wife this letter that said he's like, "You and the rebels aren't going to know where I am for a while." So on November twelfth, he sends his last telegram, and it's to General Thomas, and all it says is, "Dispatch received. All right." And the wires are cut after that. And Sherman writes in his memoirs that he felt free and glorious. I felt when that telegraph was cut and he's like, fucking a let's go. Let's you, get this shit done. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago about McClellan, for example, and the meddling yeah. from the North and Sherman had this real hatred of the media. He hated the fact that the, 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 the press was following him around. How much, how good that must've felt to cut that telegraph. And just basically say, fuck it, we're going. We're going to be out here. It's going to be stiff, but we're going to get there. And it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be tough without the supply lines, but it's going to be fun to get there. And how he's going to march with no supply lines. Again, maybe that example of Vicksburg again. And he is going to tell his guys, look, 
250 miles, we got to go. Uh, we're going to have no supply lines. We're going to be living off the land. We're going to be foraging. Just take a little, little which, as much as you can get, you know, bare essentials. So probably just their weapons, maybe one teddy bear. That's it. <laughs> the one thing Sherman wanted them to have on this march, though, was two pairs of socks. Two pairs of socks. Very important. Two pairs of socks. Yeah. But they would, most, they would mostly be living off the land. And you had that story that we talked before about his experience, about how he chose to get through that, that part of Georgia. And it was because he had taken a look at the tax records from, I think it was 1860. And he chose the areas that were the richest in ag agriculture. So he oh. knew that he was going to be able to get the food for his men that he needed. And the thing with Georgia is that the further south you go, the sandier the soil becomes, the less rich in agriculture and food the land is. So at the beginning of the march, the men are eating very, very well. Towards the end, they're living off like rice and, and all that. So I think he's trying to fuel them up for what he knows is to come near the end once they get close to Savannah, which is not as much food but he is going basically through the rich heartland of the Confederacy. So mm -hmm. it's going to be, yeah, the, it's going to be plantation owners. He encounters too. Mm -hmm. I mean, he march. knows, I mean, it's brilliant. His parts for him to get those census maps and know, because to your point, oh, yeah. they're, they're getting corn, they're getting cattle, they're getting pigs. Yeah. Sweet yeah, potatoes the, was a big thing too, that they were eating but, a lot of. But by the end, they're basically just eating ramen. That's all they could get. I know. Yeah, point. it was like, it was because ramen it, night every night. It was ramen noodles is all they could get. They had yeah. no water. They had no water. But, but they had to basically had to get through. So he sets up basically two wings. And he's going to target Milledgeville, which at the time was the capital of Georgia. He's going to send the other one to Macon. So it was led by two commanders that everybody seems to know, especially from the east. And you know who those were, Mary. Yes, Oliver Otis Howard is going to command the right wing, as we said, and then General Henry Slocum is going to command the left wing. Both these men come from the Eastern Theater, and as we know, Howard especially does not have the greatest reputation. Sherman wanted men who were capable, not easily panicked, without overriding ambitions or imagination. So this is why somebody like Blackjack, Logan, or even Hooker, there's no way that Sherman would have entrusted them with this. He wanted men who were purely soldiers. He needed somebody that would obey orders and execute them promptly and on time. Now, the cavalry is a little bit, I had someone say to me on Twitter, like, why did he pick Kilpatrick for the cavalry? He was not very good at it. And Sherman said, when Sherman was asked about this, Sherman's like, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted someone who was kind of crazy to do the cavalry stuff. Mm -hmm. Because Kilpatrick, I mean, as bad as he was, he also had good luck as well so he's basically going to be screening howard's right wing is he's going to be over on that side because and i think that's to do with where hood and forest were at the time because yeah, it was possible that they were going to come down from that way now i think howard has the more challenging wing in this from just from what i've read well yeah he does well the right wing is the one that really ends up with griswoldville that that's yeah. the um that's that's the right wing. so that would that would be uh, Peter Osterhaus would have bumped into those guys. So yeah, that we talked a little bit about that battle, pretty good sized battle, about five thousand guys, you need yeah. victory. So he's really the one who finds uh, realistically is going to ultimately find the most trouble along the way, yeah. as they say. We um, before we get too deep into the march, we got to talk about Special Order One Twenty. 
what I was just thinking. You were See, in my I know, mind. I, 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 I could hear. You I know what I'm thinking. I know. I you know that, what I'm thinking. The Canadian mind of yours. So, the 9th of November of 1864, right before he's going to leave, Sherman comes up with this special order 120, and just there's a handful of things. There's seven basically directives. In, in essence, what what it is, he's assigning Howard and Slocum to be the wing yep. commanders. He wants them to travel basically on parallel roads. He wants to have Kilpatrick basically screen him. He really gets into his rules. And I think this is important when we talk about the march yep. to the sea here. It talks about his rules as far as foraging. So this is going to be kind of like Lee going to Gettysburg or even Maryland the first time. Part of this is a gigantic grocery trip. Instead of sending the supplies back to Winchester the way Lee was going to do it, they're going to basically consume them as they go because they have no other choice. Exactly. You know? they're, they're also not capturing freeborn African-Americans. Right. That's something that when people, uh, just because Sherman is, you know, kind of, well, he's my second favorite general now, but, you know, I have taken a lot of shit over the years for really admiring Sherman. And they'll say like, yeah, well, look what he did in the March to the Sea and with foraging and they burned all those places. He's like, yeah, well, he wasn't taking freed African-Americans and putting them back into slavery. It seems like no one ever mentions that part of the Gettysburg campaign at times, but that's for a whole other episode. Yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave I just that want to throw that out there, though. Well, okay, well, way to fire up the, the masses on that one. Good job <laughs> at that. You can send that email right to Civil War Breakfast Club at gmail.com. Send your complaints at Tension Mary, north of the border, Mary Queen of Scotch. Now you know why. But basically, <laughs> so he, he talks in his, in his 120 about foraging. He talks about have number of carts, uh, wagons. We're going to be looking for uh, turnips, potatoes, other vegetables. We want to have 10 days supplies at all times. It's kind of what he's talking about. But then it gets interesting too, though, where he talks about the destruction of the neighborhoods. And this is number mm. five. Basically what he says is, look, the, the core commanders are the ones who are going to decide what we're going to, you, what you're going to burn. Okay. That's what it's going to be. Talking about, you know, Oster House, you're talking about Blair, Slocum, and Alpheus Williams. That's who you, yep. those are the four guys who are allegedly can just make these, just make these decisions. He says in neighborhoods and districts where the army is unmolested, no destruction of such property will be permitted. And that's important because we'll talk about that in a little while. Then he talks about the army commanders should order and enforce a devastation more or less relentless according to the measure of such hostility. So what he's basically yep. saying is, if they piss you off, make them pay. Yeah, and that's okay. very that's going to be very loose depending on who the right. commander is. Yep. He's saying, we don't want you to do it, but if they attack you, run up the score because this is what we want. He actually talks about not saying having bad language, which is kind of funny. After all of this, kill them all, kill them all, but don't swear. You know, he, he wants to talk about no, no abuse of language. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's like, it's Sherman one. though. You know, he was like dropping F-bombs left, right, and center. The other thing too, to mention just about the, the foraging, when he says that the army will forage liberally on the countryside during the march, this is something where Sherman 1862 during the Vicksburg campaign was like, uh, I don't think we should do this. And then he's like, all of a sudden he goes from zero to whatever. And he's like, fuck that. We are we're taking it all. And this was actually, interestingly enough, the foraging, I think number four and number five were the ones that Howard struggles with the most. And I'm guessing that's to do with him as a Christian, that he just, he did not believe in that part of the march, but because he had been ordered to do it. Well, they had no choice. He had no I mean, choice. You gotta, you gotta eat something. I mean, that was the thing is you're going away from your supply lines totally. You have to live off the land. I mean, yeah. um, you know, but Sherman basically says, just, you know, destroy any military related thing. But, you know, we're going to get food 
don't do anything bad unless you're provoked on it. He talks about the, the allowing the blacks in the columns, which we hear about at Ebenezer Creek later on. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that next time. The moral of the story with this is we got to forage. We need to get food for the army. We don't want to cause any unnecessary pain, but at the same time, we need to scare the hell out of everybody. Yeah. So you, you had people, you know, women, children, elderly, anybody who was still in, you know, that part of Georgia, they were scared to death of the sight of this army coming. A lot of it was probably misconception. A lot of mm-hmm. it was probably folklore, but they heard about Atlanta. They heard about Vicksburg. They heard about everything, Donaldson, Shiloh, everything this, this army specifically has done. But now Sherman is deem of, is demon off demified. Yeah, he's kind of he's he's like a say like very much like i don't i want to say satanic but just that you know kind of like a devil or whatever is kind of the image that i mean he still holds it in some cases in in the south and i mean even at the time he is criticized by confederate commanders for what he's doing like he gets letters from them saying like what are you doing like you're taking from our people Mm-hmm. And Sherman responds to one of them, there are well-established established principles of war, and the Southerners decided, decided they wanted war. So kind of like, he's like, fucking yeah. deal with it. Like, just well, you have be, to deal with it. Funny part about this is, you read the Special Order 120, mm-hmm. and it's very soft, considering yeah. what it actually was. But you're going to look back to the way he was. Everything kind of changed for Sherman when he fought Statham Bedford Forrest a couple of years earlier in the war. Yeah. Then he, you know, then he decided, you know, going back to September twenty, September of eighteen sixty-three, I would make war as severe as possible and show no symptoms of of tiring until the South begs for mercy. Mm-hmm. So you started seeing these quotes coming out of him. Now you can remember too, he's a West Point guy who was one of the most popular theories of military strategy that they all studied was Jomini. Right. Yeah. Jomini basically, uh, Antoine Henri Jomini, another easy name to say, is basically like firm military strength to dishearten the enemy. This is what Sherman was taught, and this is what he believed in in his core, that you need to punish them and you need to scare them. You need to basically take their will away, which is similar to what the South was trying to do to the North during this exactly. year, during the election year. Yep. So when everyone sits there and says, "Well, you know, Sherman." wasn't Bravo. Well, Lee was doing the same thing. Exactly. He's doing the same. When he was going, when he's going through Pennsylvania, he's going through Maryland, he's trying to scare the piss out of the North to get them to quit. Sherman is doing the same, same thing. But again, you have a order which tells them to be limited, do what you got to do, be limited. But the reality is, as we get into this, some of the stories that come out of this aren't exactly as innocent as it sounds. I mean, some of it's it's probably true. Some of it's probably not. You know, there's that story where he runs into that textile mill that's run by women, and he accuses them all of treason because they're Mm -hmm. making, like, blankets for the Confederacy. So he sends them all to Indiana, of all horrible places, Indiana, he sends them to. That's where Jay Price Um, is from. (laughs) That's where I said it. (laughs) And, 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 And... Okay. And my team is playing Notre Dame this weekend. So that's, that's, that's a different story. That's my so team he's, too. So he, so he says, true. So he sends these women to Indiana and not, they never hear from him again. Who knows whatever happened to them? They have no idea. Maybe it's one of Jay Price's relatives and long, you know, whatever, but it talks about a lot of that stuff he did. We'll talk about major Henry Hitchcock here in a little bit, who basically was a uh, military secretary new mm-hmm. to Sherman. Yep. And by, and by all accounts, they were, they were, cool at the beginning they seemed like they got along well everything seemed to be going pretty well but he started to have some concerns during this march mm-hmm. and i know they talk about it a lot of different stuff but when you talk about some of the things that he was concerned about sherman's basically telling these guys you need to stop the endless burning the tormenting 
And then as, as he walks away, he's kind of wink and give him a high five. On this. So he's, what he's saying versus what he's telling them and doing is a little bit different according to Hitchcock. He's, mm-hmm. he's telling them basic, you know, he's, he's mortified. There's all kinds of stories that come out about what Sherman is doing. There's a couple of different stories that actually I looked up earlier today. He's basically going to different properties and he's basically enforcing this discipline. And he's, he's basically challenging the people in the South to capitulate, to be fearful of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Sherman has dinner with Hitchcock at this woman's house. Her name is Mrs. Farrer Farrar. Yeah. Okay. She's a rebel. She's got family who's fighting for the Confederacy, or she's certainly a sympathizer. He, he basically calmly just tells her, hey, you know, just so you know, you're going to face utter ruin if you don't obey this, if you don't tell these people to stop fighting. They had a real problem because the slaves, she must have been a really difficult slave owner because she had a plantation, so she, she owned the slaves. She had this dog, apparently, she used to attack the slaves who she mm-hmm. loved. And the Sherman basically said, shoot the dog right in front of her. Boom, shot the dog. And and that was really common on on the march that that happened. And it it sounds so cruel for us right now. Like whatever Sherman's state of mind was at the time or or the men, you know, and I'm not saying that it was right, but, you know, it was kind of like, got to end this war. And I'm sure for Hitchcock, it was horrific to see that. There's a whole bunch of stories like that. It's just, it's one of those things that there's a woman that, that Dolly Burge, Mm-hmm. There's another story that comes yep. out. Uh, she lived in a plantation out in, in Covington, Georgia, and mid-November, she, you know, she's worried about hearing the Union troops coming. Uh, the next day, they actually do show up. They basically take all of her food, take all of her meat, and burn the entire her entire place down. That was kind of the way it was, and she, and she was, you know, she obviously very very upset. She basically said, "May God spare, you know, spare me from this." And there was a there was a yeah. lot of stuff. This is also the Southern point of view mm-hmm. as well. And these men are trying to to forage and all that. And yeah, like some of them went a bit above and beyond what they were <laughs> supposed to do, not in a good way. The one thing to um, just on that line of like the foraging is mm-hmm. that there was a certain group of men selected to do this foraging they will eventually become known as the bummers they're not known as the bummers at the very beginning it's close to the end where it started starts to be mentioned that they are the bummers but these are the men that would be the ones to steal with the commissary all the time and sherman told his commanders pick men that you know can do this So basically pick the shit disturbers, tell them to go out and do what they're good at. And O'Connell has a really good quote about this. While the great majority of soldiers remained in the columns, marching along with their units, it was the foragers or bummers, as they were soon being called, who largely earned the march its reputation, put their distinctive mark on it with a torrent of crazy stolen costumes. So they're going to the houses and they're taking dresses and whatever else they can find, antic behavior and darkly funny antidotes. If you were a boy in blue, you might have thought of them as a kind of traveling entertainment and catering service, coming in every night after a hard day's march, laden with food and stories that would keep you laughing for half the night. So there is an element of fun to this march, too, for these men who were on it. Well, of course it was. I mean, they're basically... Yeah, they don't know where the fuck they're going. They're just like, like, everyday entertainment and food comes back. I mean, it's almost like, you know, you're like like last week was Halloween. You're you're, you're out vandalizing on Halloween, except you're you're having the ability... (laughs) You have the ability to do it. I mean, you kind of do. But again, it's a lot of these stories come from Hitchcock, and he had no axe to grind with Sherman. So you have to believe some of them are true, but I think he had to do it. You know, there's that story on November 25th, which we know is the greatest day of the year. We know we've talked about that. Okay. Yeah, it is. Um, 
That's coming up, as a matter of fact. But he come, he's, he's in a place called, called Buffalo Creek, which is near uh, Sandersonville. Yep. He finds out that the Confederates had burned this bridge that he needed to get across. Mm-hmm. Sherman decides, looks around, sees the nearest house. He says, burn that house. So he goes over there. Well, he doesn't do it. He has his guys do it. He burns the house down, and he leaves a message saying that if, you know, if you're willing to let Confederates burn a bridge in your neighborhood to stop us, we're going to burn the nearest thing we could find. So yeah. it's that psychological warfare that you're starting to see yeah. that goes on and on and on. And by now, to the point we talked about, these people, and I don't want to say poor people because, you know, they, you know, they whatever, but, but they had to be living in constant fear. And, and to this day, if, you know, if you read Horowitz's Confederate in the Attic, it has, tells us a lot of stories yep. about Atlanta. But if you go down there now to this day, it's all oh, it's still Yeah, it's, it's every, a lot. It's, it's historical memory, right? It's, it's not. Trudeau in his book, Southern Storm, sums it up very well. And O'Connell does too. They're not sympathetic to Sherman, but they're basically saying there's a lot of historical memory that plays into this. And I think the one thing to remember is that Lee is up north. He's done the same shit as well. These are the people that are waging war. And this war has been going on for however many years at this point. And Sherman has fine Sherman and Grant, and I mean, Sheridan to some extent too, have finally said, fuck it. We need to start to end this thing. And that's what they're doing. And of course, if you've been visited by Sherman's men as foragers, you might exaggerate a little bit how they treated you. Of course, of course. You would. I no, mean, so there is that bias that plays into it as well. For the most part, the march is they march 15 miles a day on average. They make camp every night. They get up every morning and are on the road again by seven. So they're moving at a very brisk pace. These are men that are in incredible shape. Sherman was said to have helped in the selection of them. So if you were sick, if you could not keep up or whatever, then you were not going to be able to go on this march. And I think it's in O'Connell's book that he says that basically selected an army full of Shermans. And that's what he did. Like, Mm -hmm. these are men that to march 15 miles a day with your pack on is something. Mm -hmm. And to possibly encounter some possible fighting like Howard does with Mm -hmm. when he leaves Atlanta on November the 15th, he encounters rebels at uh, Jonesboro. Mm-hmm. that he's got to contend with. Howard is moving towards Macon. And the reason he's doing that is because Macon is a major area that they think is going to, the rebels could think is going to be hit. So they're making it look like Howard is headed that way to keep soldiers there. But mm-hmm. in doing that, Howard has to spread his men so thinly that if he gets attacked, it could be dangerous. And he's also got to cross a creek. So there has to be a pontoon bridge built for that too. So there's a couple of days where Howard is very much on edge as to if this is actually going to work, but he manages to pull it off. And the one thing Howard doesn't do, oddly enough, Let what do guess. you think that is? I bet he doesn't run. He doesn't run. No. Huh. No, it's very hard. Because <laughs> I heard, I heard on the internet, that's all he ever did. Yeah, so did I. That's weird. But you know, a lot of the diversionary tactics are good because what was funny was the Confederates tried the same thing when they sent Hood to Tennessee, hoping some of Sherman's guys would get pulled away. I mean, they did get some of them pulled away, but not really. So who was left to who was left to defend Georgia? Thirteen thousand guys against sixty thousand, mostly children, elderly people. That's all they had. There wasn't a lot of fighting. You mentioned Jonesboro, mentioned Griswoldville. It was a limited battle. But again, this was a situation where the the Confederates were putting landmines in the paths. Yeah, that happens later in the. It happens. We'll talk. We'll talk about that in part two of this. But Sherman, Sherman, very, very, very decisively makes that stop. 
and we'll talk about that. I'll just yeah. spoil the ending, but it didn't turn out well for Confederate soldiers who got caught. But basically, the whole plan was to continue along. So finally, the armies are going to get back together again. This is where the, the what-if game comes in. So anytime you have an army that's spread out and split up, they're vulnerable, right? Yep. And especially when you are in a foreign land, which is, mm-hmm. I guess is what they were, if the Confederates had a more competent general in that area, how that could have gone badly for Sherman. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe a Albert City Johnson, for example. Maybe someone like that. Yeah. Somebody or who if probably... Claiborne had again, if Claiborne had been in charge instead of Hood. Yeah. And Claiborne, because he's not in charge, is about to get himself killed on November the 30th at the Battle yeah. of Franklin. Like... It's it's re- it's remarkable that they left Georgia that open. And they yeah. they they missed a golden opportunity to hit Sherman when he was spread out. He had wings spread out. He only, you know, he had, had 60,000 guys, but they were all over the place. They were in foreign territory. Now, fortunately, because of Sherman's experience in being there before, he knew the lay of the land. He knew where to go. Mm-hmm. But they were very vulnerable. And especially when you had no supply lines, you had no telegraph, you had yep. no way to get help. You know, you that, that line about he went down the rabbit hole and, you know, we'll see he when he comes come out. out. Yeah, and, and just... You know, Howard and Slocum, you know, this is why Sherman chooses them because they're so calm and collected individuals. And I think this is the one thing, like, especially with Howard that gets missed in looking at him, that he's under a lot of pressure during this, especially when he's having to do this, go against Macon to make it look like, okay, I'm headed towards you, but really I'm not just so that the men stay there and that they don't decide to go elsewhere. They're like trying to get them to think of where they're, they're going or whatever, you know, to see Howard do that, what he's got to put into that really, I think, shows his talent as a general. And I mean, Slocum's having to do similar things as well. The one thing to mention, though, before we start wrapping this up, though, is Griswold Bill. It's not a major battle, but it is probably one of the more notable battles. Oh, it was the first battle of the March of the Sea. It was the first battle in the March of the Sea, and it is a Georgia militia against Union officers. And the Georgia militia is basically men who are in their 60s and 70s and boys who are as young as 14 or 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And they're going to suffer around 500 casualties on the Confederate side. And of those, 51 are going to be dead and 472 wounded. Union soldiers have accounts of finding 15-year-old boys that are wounded. There are accounts too that there was actually well more than 600 casualties. In that. Yeah. There was, there was stories, but, but this is what you were left with. This is what you were left with to defend against a land shark, as you as they called it. Right. Yeah. And, and really it could, it really could have been a lot worse. If you think mm-hmm. about it, I mean, when you lose five, 600 guys against when you have 2,300 people, 2,500 people, you only lose that many when they're all inexperienced. You would talk about balls bluff last week about what happened mm-hmm. with the inexperience. That's what they were down to. I mean, this point of the war, the war in essence, for all practical purposes, was just about over after yeah. Atlanta. They weren't going to win. They weren't going to lose the election. Lincoln had it. And at this point, he's just going to Savannah. He's going to hit, he's going to get there, you know, this December 21st. He's going he's to be able to move on up. And we'll talk about that second half later as we go to this. But I think when we talk about, we don't want to spoil the ending, but I think everybody knows he, I think everybody knows he gets there. Yeah. Know? Yeah, he stays at the Quinta Inn right there in Savannah for a couple of days. Got a half price deal because he had so many people stay for a while. But he, but it's going to ultimately be one of the more historical and infamous parts of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And as you look at Sherman, you can see that March to the Sea was an encapsulation of everything he'd learned was trained his entire life. It talked yeah. about his his attitude about Jiminy that the the 
the military strategist. It mm -hmm. talks about his ability, his, his land, his science, yep. his math. It just talks about how to live off the land as experiences to Vicksburg. So he was learning. And so as on the other side of the Confederate side, where it seemed like they weren't learning, they were just mm -hmm. falling on their dicks every chance they could. <laughs> you know, Sherman was a computer that's getting stronger and getting self, you know, more self-aware as he was going. And it really showed on this. And when you talk popular culture, even today, you talk the Gone with the Wind in these movies, they talk about Atlanta with Sherman. Yeah. It shows what a haunting figure he is. Take it from somebody who sat at the bar with a Sherman t-shirt in Atlanta. Hey, I did shit. that in Georgia. You know, I mean, I've told you before, besides Tom Brady, Sherman's the most hated guy in Atlanta. There's no yeah. question. Oh, I did and, that in Georgia. I got, I got a glare. Well, you got, you got a glare. I'm a sure, a sure. glare. I was shocked. That it was I wonder why. I wonder why. Okay, so I'm bopping around with my Kennesaw Mountain with a shirt on, with my Union hat on, you know, singing Johnny Was Marching Home. That's my <laughs> favorite picture of you. That is. It's a good one. Yeah. I'm such, a, such an asshole sometimes. But I mean... <laughs> <laughs> awesome, though. But, um, but seriously, it, it, it's, it still resonates today. And the, the impact of William Tecumseh Sherman through Georgia, through that part of, the, of the, the war, and specifically through this march, is one that's just fascinating to study. And specifically because there was really no big battles. I mean, think about it. No. He's, this whole thing is him walking through the woods. He's going through walking the woods with 60,000 of his friends. And it yeah. becomes one of the most famous marches in American history because of what it ultimately led to, yeah. which was eventually attacking Richmond with, with Grant. Yeah. You know what I've always wanted to get? This is just a side story. Um, mm -hmm. You know all those people who run marathons, they've got like whatever number of miles or kilometers they've run on it. Like the 26.2 stickers, the yeah. college you mean? I've always wanted to get whatever the March the Sea is in kilometers. Ooh. And then someone asks me, Ooh, that's a long way. Did you actually run that? And I'm, I want to say, nah, I marched it. Well, you got to get miles. You got to get off this kilometer thing. Well, that's a good idea. Though. I want to get. Yeah, one I just want to say, like, nah, I marched it. I'm gonna get one that says zero point zero. I don't run. I've seen those, you know. But that'd be a good one. You could do that. You can get, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's well, a good just, idea. Mary. Like I said, want to get it, and then when someone says, "How do you actually ran that?" No, 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 I marched it. Oh, yeah, but but I'm the a hole. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so well, we got to talk about Milledgeville. Oh right? yeah, yeah, that's where he stops. He stops at Milledgeville. So when he stops there, one of his men actually stops and says to him, first act of the drama, well played, General." And Sherman just said, "Yes, sir." Yes, sir. The first act is well played. So this is, he considers Milledgeville kind of the, the end of the first act of the March to the Sea. Yeah. And those that Milledgeville, as we mentioned before at the time, was the capital of Georgia. It's now mm -hmm. been moved to, uh, uh, it's, is it Augusta or Atlanta, the capital of Georgia now? I don't know what it is. I think it's. I don't even, I don't, I don't even know that. But at the, at, the, at the time, uh, Milledgeville was the capital of Georgia. You know, when Slocum's guys it's got Atlanta. there. Is Atlanta okay? Anyway, I'm thinking of other masters, right? Something. Anyway, yeah. so they get there, and what do the soldiers do? They end up going into the state capitol, and they have themselves a little fake little Congress, and they deem slavery illegal, and they so they vote and they turn it down. And they're and, drinking. And no, 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 so no. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? This is Goderich. They don't drink. But, but, and then they find a bunch of Confederate money and they're having a party. But that's really kind of like the big stop. That's, that's where they're going to stop. And I think that's a good place for us to stop, Mary. I think we can talk about the rest of it later. I think so, yeah. Um, 
the March of the Sea doesn't really, it goes until mid-December. So we are going to talk about some other subjects. In the meantime, this is Mary's brilliant idea, which is really, really good. I have to give you props on this one. We're going to be back doing some other podcasts within these next few weeks, but Sherman's going to disappear for a while. He's going to be doing yep. his march while we're doing our podcast. Yep. And then we'll catch up with him and his army uh, down the road right when they get to Savannah. We will talk specifically about what happens there. So we'll tune into that story a little bit later. So that'll be a, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to mention about Sherman staying in Milledgeville is he spends the night in the governor's mansion, but he sleeps on the floor. Mm-hmm which yeah. I found really, really cool. It's just kind of a little bit of a break for them before they get, as O'Connell says, Sherman's Roadshow resumed. <laughs> which, yeah, if I can recommend one book to read about Sherman, and it has probably, it's a very short summary of the March to the Sea. Like it's, I don't know, maybe a chapter long or whatever. It's really, really, he sums it up really well. Robert L. O'Connell's Fierce Patriot. And if you want like a really in-depth book to read about the March to the Sea before we get to our next episode, then definitely check out Southern Storm by Noah Andre Trudeau. And also if you have Sherman's memoirs, read his account of the March to the Sea as well. Because it's a lot, of, a lot of good enabling going on there, Mary. I think yep. I, I've become Southern Storm. So I will, I will say it's a very easy read. Mm-hmm. So Noah Andre Trudeau is very, very good. And so yeah. we'll definitely do that. So coming attractions as we exit stage right here. So we have our Andrew Facebook Bob. Live. Well, oh, well, yes. food, but don't get ahead of the story. Sorry. So, <laughs> so Saturday, we have our Facebook Live at 10 o'clock in the morning. So hopefully you can join us for that. We will be doing our second of the uh, Cape Cod Civil... Cape Cod. See, I almost made it the whole time. I almost did it. <laughs> Civil War Breakfast. How do I do it? I don't... The Civil War Breakfast Club Roundtable, which is going to be next Wednesday. Yeah. And we're going to be doing that at six o'clock. Yep. Just going to be doing it for an hour. So no, you know, it's been wake the, wake the children, you know, let the, invite the neighbors, bring everybody over. We're going to be doing that on uh, next Wednesday. And then we'll be going back to Chattanooga next yep. weekend for, yep. or next, ne- next week we'll be doing that. So we'll a lot of fun stuff. For a couple weeks, actually. Yeah. We'll be there for another two parts. So a lot of, uh, a lot of fun coming up. So hopefully you enjoyed this one. I think this was a lot of fun for you. You've been wanting to, you've been itching for March of the Sea Mary for so long about this. No, this was a lot of fun to, to do with you. And as always, you brought your A game with it. I do what I can. I was a happy part of the team, Mary. Oh. You know how it is. No, there's no egos here. No, uh, you rocked it. So <laughs> anyway, so everybody, thanks again for, for joining us. So hopefully uh, you have a great week. Hopefully you have a nice Friday night and we will see you on Saturday for our live. Please be there. We'll have a good time because otherwise I got to talk to her by myself and that's horrible. So we'll have fun with everybody and we'll definitely do that for the round table next week too. So any party words, Mary um, Queen of Scotch. <laughs> I'm just really happy to be talking about the March to the Sea. Oh, it was a great, great discussion. And thanks to everybody who came out to seeing us on Tattooed Historian John's um, live stream last night. That was really awesome. And thanks also for your continued support with us. We couldn't do it without you. You guys are making this a great community to have. Y'all are awesome. Absolutely. Definitely. So unlucky episode 13 is in the books. So we will, <laughs> as I say, we are on to episode 14 as we will go head towards towards yeah. Chattanooga. So anyway, again, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Mary, as always, a pleasure as always to see another outstanding episode. So yeah. we will talk to you all soon and we will catch you Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Have a safe weekend and we will see you then. See you later, guys. Peace out. Bye.